from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. We're kicking off our 2023 College Roadshow with Bex from right here at Mizzou. Did you know the soil erosion research here led to the formation of the Natural Resource Conservation Service? It's true, and we have so much more to uncover from Columbia this week. A groundbreaking discovery, 75 years old. And they were looking for that golden antibiotic, that one that would really be very effective. What they found that not only saved lives, but is still being used today. Mizzou makes history. This is the first one at a university and it's also one of the first ones, if not the first one, outside of the state of California. How this modern, autonomous, and electric machine will be a tool for research and extension in the years ahead. An early harvest. It's been a situation where, just in the last few weeks again, I think we've turned down in terms of where that soybean crop looks like. Crop conditions crumble as the heat pushes crops to a breaking point. Plus, chances of a farm bill by the end of September fade, but what does it mean for ag? All of that and more as we kick off our College Roadshow this week from Mizzou. The 2023 U.S. Farm Report College Roadshow from the University of Missouri is brought to you exclusively by Bex. From farmers' first pass in the field to the final one at harvest, it's a game plan rooted in faith and belief. Bex Hybrids is with you every turn because both on and off the field, we're all farmers at heart. See why at BexHybrids.com. Now for the news, a new crop conditions report from USDA shows things are on the decline. It now reports 53% of the corn crop in the country is rated good to excellent. That's down three percentage points from last week. And 18% of the crop is considered mature. That's two points ahead of the five-year average. And at this point in the season, experts say change to the corn crop will be limited. There's just a small amount of grain fill that's still taking place on some of the later developing corn, which would mainly be in the eastern corn belt. But for some of those hotter, drier areas, especially west of the Mississippi River. That corn is pretty well set in stone in terms of what the final outcome is going to be. It's getting to the point where it's either mature or very close to it. Now soybeans also taking a hit. 53% of the crop is now rated good to excellent. That's down five points just in a week. Kansas in particular having trouble with beans. Now 40% are rated poor to very poor. Overall, 16% of the soybeans are starting to drop leaves three points ahead of average. And cotton, that crop also dropping now 31% is good to excellent. That is down two more points from the previous week. Spring wheat now 74% harvested, down three points from average. Russia is saying no to a renewed Black Sea grain deal for now. Russian President Vladimir Putin saying the deal won't be restored until the West meets Moscow's demands on its own agricultural exports. Putin meaning Monday for several hours with his Turkish counterpart in Russia. Putin adding that Russia is ready to send 1 million tons of grain to African countries with the help of Turkey. Still, Turkey's leader expressed hope a breakthrough could come soon. Russia in July refused to extend the deal that is seen as vital for global food supplies. The situation at the Panama Canal continues to worsen. Now local authority is auctioning off passage to the highest bidder. The Panama Canal Authority now holding auctions for ships waiting to pass. Drought and low water levels are causing traffic to back up on both sides of the canal. Since July, just 32 vessels a day have been allowed through the locks, down from a normal 36. But the reduction is causing a growing backlog. According to one report, a shipping company paid $2.4 million at auction 
to gain passage. The canal authority says the restrictions may last another 10 months, and it says right now there are just over 100 ships waiting to pass through. Delays at the canal could impact grain exports from the U.S. to Asia as harvest begins to ramp up. All right, that's it for the news. Well, the heat making a comeback again this week, but we're also keeping our eye on a hurricane. We'll have a check of your forecast coming up next. U.S. Farm Report weather is brought to you by H&S Manufacturing. Polysides, floor, and a rear monoblock gearbox on vertical beater models are just some of the great features of the H&S Hydra Push 425 and 550 bushel model manure spreaders. Find out more about the Hydra Push at the H&S website. Time now for a check of weather. Meteorologist Matt Engelbrecht joining us this weekend. Matt, last weekend we were talking about the hurricane and the potential for more hurricanes this season, keeping an eye on that. But here in Missouri, the biggest concern right now is rain. But it may be too late for many of these crops as the heat has definitely taken a toll. Yeah, latest root zone map that tells you exactly what you're talking about, Ty, with Missouri uh, staying very dry. And I'm not talking uh, just dry or very dry. We're in that extreme category uh, portions of Missouri and then back up here towards the north as well into Minnesota and Wisconsin. Uh, in terms of where that rain is going to come down in the extended uh, period into next week. So this is September 14th through the 20th. Uh, you see a ridge of high pressure is going to develop back here towards the west. A trough is going to dig and usually when that trough digs, we get an increase of rain chances or systems tend to be a little bit bigger. Unfortunately, where that trough digs is going to be on the east coast. So we'll see more rain chances up and down the east coast removed from that tropical system as that trough comes into the south. And that's going to leave locations pretty dry in and across Missouri uh, and the Midwest for an extended period of time, expecting drier than normal conditions in those locations. And here's a look at that jet stream. So we finish out this weekend. Uh, the big story is going to be two of them. One is going to be that trough digging in the jet stream. The second is going to be the hurricane, Hurricane Lee, that is in the Atlantic. Now, this is a jet stream on Monday. What you'll see as we get into Tuesday and Wednesday with this map is first this trough, which is right here. Notice uh, how not only shallow it is on Monday, but how far to the east it is going to be. When I hit the button, you'll see it dig. What we want is it to dig back here to the west. That would have brought a lot more rain into Missouri, up into Minnesota, and the Dakotas. But since this isn't going to be digging down uh, until we get into the Midwest on Wednesday, I'm not expecting much in the way of rainfall for those locations. It's mainly going to be for the East Coast. So as we go into Wednesday and into Thursday, uh, that trough starts to lift. And this little circle here, that is the hurricane, Hurricane Lee, showing up in the upper parts of the atmosphere. These two are very intertwined. Where that trough digs is going to be another steering mechanism for this hurricane. It's something that we're going to be watching very closely uh, this entire week, as it is expected to be uh, quite the storm. Uh, the temperatures go kind of hand in hand with that digging trough, uh, where we're going to see below, if not uh, below normal temperatures, for a good portion of the United States, where that ridge continues to build is where the heat is going to be located back out here to the northwest. Notice not expecting a lot of warmth on the east coast because of the kind of rain and that trough digging down to the south. Thanks, Matt. Well, what are the crop prospects as things dry down so quickly across the Corn Belt this year? And what about demand? It's our marketing discussion with Scott Brown, Pat Westoff and Ben Brown from right here at Mizzou next. Your next piece of equipment is on MachineryPete.com. Search equipment from dealerships across the country to find what you're looking for. Only on MachineryPete.com.
Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Well, we're kicking off College Roadshow here at the University of Missouri, Missouri and excited to have Ben Brown, Pat Westoff, as well as Scott Brown joining us to talk everything from, from markets to policy, a lot to cover. Ben, there's a lot of question marks right now about production this year and crop size. And with Missouri crop conditions have been the worst in the country, nothing to brag about. But how bad is the crop here right now? Well, thanks, Tyne. Thanks for the question. So I've been traveling around the state telling Missouri producers, sometimes life just isn't fair. And I think that's been kind of my motto this year. Uh, Missouri crop conditions really deteriorated throughout the summer. Soil is always important in terms of soil type, but especially this year when we had the long periods of, of dryness coupled with some intense heat, soil types really did matter. And you see the lighter soil, some of the rockier soils really struggling. Uh, and, and we continue to see crop conditions, especially now on the soybean side, really come, come down here as we in the marketing or in the production year. There's concern about corn, there's concern about soybeans. You know, hearing a lot of people say, all right, corn may not be, in some areas it may be as bad as 2012, but in, in other areas, not so much. But Scott, we're hearing soybeans that possibly it is as bad as 2012. Do you, do you think that's accurate? I think in some cases it is accurate. Uh, you know, it's been a situation where just in the last few weeks, again, I think we've turned down in terms of where that soybean crop looks like. We got a little bit of rain in, in the middle part here, but we've really tailed off again with some additional heat as well that I think's really been tough on the soybean crop. I'll just say there's gonna be a lot of variability as we move around the state. I think there's gonna be some really good soybeans in some parts of the, of the state, and in other parts it's gonna be pretty tough. Pat, when you look at the price projections that FAPRI puts out at, at the beginning of the year to where we are now, considering the production picture has significantly changed in some areas, have your price projections changed at all? They haven't changed as much as you might guess. You know, while we have the below average crop this year, you might expect that to result in higher prices, but demand has not been as strong as we'd like it to be. And so prices are actually trailing though we would have guessed earlier this year. The demand has not been as strong as where we would like it to be. Is, it, is, it, is that still the case mainly for, for corn, Ben, or is, is soybeans also falling into that camp? Well, certainly it's probably most obvious for corn. Uh, soybeans certainly have had their demand struggles as well, uh, even on the export front, something that's been traditionally strong for us, but we, we continue to see struggles. On the corn side, you know, as we think about the next marketing year, uh, you know, we're sitting 29% below where we normally are on new crop bookings. And USDA, the current expectation is an increase of 26%. So we've got a long way to go to hit the current target. Um, now on the corn side, the lower yield will probably offset some of that lower demand. We just don't have a lot of wiggle room on the soybean side uh, if we have lower production like you and Scott were talking about. Well, Pat, on the renewable diesel front, you know, there was a lot of talk and a lot of excitement, and there's still that excitement, but have we seen renewable diesel, both production and demand, take off like we thought maybe a couple years ago? We've certainly seen growth in industry, and that's going to be a major source of demand growth going forward. However, it's certainly not at the pace that some people have been hoping for. We have a lot of capacity that's already been built, some capacity that's planned. We're going to see if all those plants actually operate, and our own projections are that probably not and some of those plants will not actually come to pass or will not operate at full capacity? Well, it, you know, the, the thoughts of renewable diesel that we're gonna crush um, for, the, for the, the oil and soybean meal may be a product, great news for, for, for livestock producers, but when you look at some of this relief that is needed today, I mean, even here in the Missouri, the, the, the hay crop seems to be in trouble, Scott. So it certainly is. When you look at Missouri in particular, we're down in hay production well, in 2023. Um, other states have recovered, some of the states that had more of a drought issue in 2022 than this year, but we've kind of been front and center of the dry weather that's hurt pastures and hay and ponds, so it's, it's certainly affecting the cattle industry. 
considering that we are seeing impacts from the drought, do you think we could see more consolidation in this cattle industry and liquidate more of this cattle herd? It sure seems like to me that's where we're headed. And it's almost every segment of the industry that we could see that consolidation, all the way from the cow-calf level, all the way to processing and, and to, to retailers at the end of the day. More consolidation ahead as this is an industry that you got a number of participants along the way that need to coordinate and sometimes that that concentration or consolidation I think helps with the coordination along the, the chain. Ben, real quick, next WASDE report coming up next week. Do you expect any major changes on the feed and residual side? Oh, sure. So especially on corn, that includes part of the supply picture. And as we pull down supply, that could impact the feed and residual category as well. Any major watchouts that you want to warn producers about for next week? Oh gosh, that export category on both sides is something as we look for the next year. I think that's a big piece of the puzzle uh, as we move forward the next couple of months. All right, understanding the implications of what's going on in China with the economies as well as how concerned should we be about just Brazil and the powerhouse that they've become in production. We're going to talk about that, but first we need to take a quick break and then we'll be back with much more right here on U.S. Farm Report. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Brandt, technology-driven nutrition that feeds your crop. Well, a few years ago, China's economy was exploding. They were seen as a powerhouse, but today it seems more like a meltdown. So what's really going on with China? Here's John Phipps. To my amazement, the increasingly authoritarian leader of China could go down in as the greatest rally killer in the history of modern global government. To be sure, buried in the astonishing growth record of this century were the seeds of its own destruction, but Xi's ham-handed political and economic management powered by his overweening ego, have bungled a vibrant economy into a surprising turnaround. GDP growth could just possibly drop lower than the U.S. this year, something used to be unthinkable. In fact, fewer and fewer sectors are healthy in China, and then only by direct government inter intervention. The looming but long forecast downturn is centered on the over-leveraged housing and real estate sectors. Builders, developers, real estate speculators, and home buyers are running into the harsh reality that prices can drop. The ripple effects are enormous since the real estate sector may account for as much as 30% of their GDP, far above other developed nations. The draconian COVID lockdowns reawakened harsh memories of brutal repression under Mao, undermining consumer confidence and then their spending. The touted Belt and Road Initiative has run into its own predictable flaws, like how do you repossess a bridge in Africa, for example, when they don't make the payments? There are bright spots in their economy, like EVs, high-tech, and they're still exporting a lot of consumer goods. The rest of their manufacturing behemoth is running out of stuff to copy from other people cheaply and are unprepared for a shrinking and increasingly expensive labor force and much fiercer global competition. When local governments rely on selling land to fund basic services, it's obviously a one-trick pony. Another alarming development has been the Chinese government's drastic reduction in economic data publication, which you see here. 
One of them is youth unemployment. After all, you don't stop putting out good numbers. G seems determined to achieve economic recovery with minimum government stimulus and maximum government control. So if nothing else, we're going to test the economic theory that strongman policies can drive an economy. To be sure, settling for a 2023 GDP growth rate of 4.5%, which is dropping, is a problem only because of their past growth rates and expectations. The growing discontent of Chinese citizens, though, has many economists and government leaders around the world openly predicting not only has the Chinese population peaked, but China itself. Thanks, John. And we'll ask our economists their thoughts on China coming up. But first, the Torkin Tigers, they are firing on all cylinders right now. We'll tell you why next. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Firestone Ag. Save instantly when you buy two or more eligible Firestone Ag tires during the Go Harvest Rewards promotion. Visit FirestoneAg.com or contact your local certified Firestone Ag dealer. Well, it may not be an antique tractor this weekend, but the annual quarter scale competition held in Illinois is one that is building ag engineers and the equipment design and manufacturing skills that will last a lifetime. Here at Mizzou, the Torkin Tigers are making a name for themselves both in and outside the classroom. Open up the doors to the Ag Engineering Building at Mizzou and you'll often find Ag Engineering skills at work. Torkin Tigers is a club here on Mizzou's campus. We design and build a tractor from scratch every year to take to the American Society of Agricultural and Biological Engineers contest that they hold in Peoria, Illinois. Torkin Tigers has a major goal each year, build a quarter scale tractor to compete on a national stage. We come in fall semester, we'll sit down, we'll brainstorm different ideas, different improvements, and then we'll make that on a CAD software. So we'll come up with a 3D model. The Torque and Tigers strive to have the 3D models done before Christmas break, but Goots admits that often requires some late nights. From there, we'll reach out to manufacturers to get parts bent and made, and then we'll also do some of our own machining in-house. And then from there, we'll weld everything together, bolt it together, um, send it off to powder coat, and then if we're lucky, it's done in time for contest. Each year is a process that takes a lot of time and a lot of funds to build the quarter scale from scratch. If you were to go out and buy everything and build it from scratch yourself, you'd probably be looking in the ballpark from twenty-five dollars to $30,000. Um, so fundraising is a very big part of our, our year. Last year, they competed with this. Tiger 18. And what makes this one so special? Well, Goot says it's the drivetrain. We do a really good job of getting by near all 32 ponies all the way to the drive shaft and into the rear tires, which really helps us in our pulls. The group also redesigned the suspension to help with durability. But with each quarter scale tractor they design, it has to fit within the contest standards. So we're limited to 900 pounds. They give us a 32 horsepower engine that we are not allowed to modify in any way. And then there's a plethora of other rules, but those are the major ones. This year, the seniors are working on all new steering geometry, hoping it'll be even better than the last. But no matter how they place, it's skills learned here that could last a lifetime. 
Congratulations to the Torkin Tigers. They actually submitted the winning social media video, the Bex Pay It Forward social media contest that we had here at Mizzou. You can see how they helped spread kindness beyond campus on the Torkin Tigers Instagram page. Well, coming up next, it's a $25 million investment that's carving out opportunity that will last for generations. And it's an area that most universities aren't expanding today. So why is it happening here at Mizzou? We have that answer next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Welcome back. Well, as you look at the expansion and investments taking place at land-grant universities across the U.S., there are a few who've decided to carve out a niche in meat processing. But thanks to a $25 million investment, that's exactly what's happening here at Mizzou. And it's money that could create workforce development beyond the classroom. A big win for the College of Agriculture, Food and Natural Resources here at Mizzou. It was a big win for the University of Missouri this summer. So it's a $25 million uh, capital investment. Um, it's coming from the state of Missouri uh, via the legislature. So, um, and that's going to be a, to build a new meat processing plant uh, here at the University of Missouri. With an animal harvest facility that dates back to the 1950s and a processing building that's nearly 25 years old, the funds will now transform meat processing here at Mizzou. We have meat processing as part of our curriculum, both in the undergraduate and the graduate space, um, but we really need a step forward. Uh, we have outdated um, equipment, outdated uh, facilities, so this is going to give us an opportunity to step way up into the future. It's a conversation that started nearly a decade ago, but during the pandemic, it came into focus again. If we go back to COVID uh, and we look at our meat processing industry, um, we've had some resiliency conversations about the workforce, uh, readiness into that industry. With both small and large processors across the state, Wigan says there are growing demands for students ready to step into food processing upon graduation. For us, uh, we're, we're gonna meet maybe two goals. Um, our traditional students that can go out and get a really good job in food processing and food industry. And then there's an adult learner side of this that's becoming very um, prominent. From traditional classroom learning to hands-on mobile units that can be deployed in the field, Mizzou is carving out a niche. Meat processing does involve the intersection of animal sciences and food sciences, but there's also a lot of important regulatory issues, a lot of important policy issues. We at the University of Missouri in our college, we have the people, we have the programs able to bring all of those sciences together to best serve Missouri's livestock industry. Chris Dalbert is the Dean of College of Agriculture, Food and Natural Resources, and he says Mizzou will be a destination for meat science and meat processing. With our commitment to the meat sciences, this laboratory will be a destination where we can showcase the latest and greatest in technologies. We can talk about the sciences, talk about the food safety issues to best serve um, the meat processing industry. Again, to allow the livestock industry an opportunity to extend and expand uh, their products into the marketplace. The $25 million was passed through the Missouri legislature and approved by Governor Parson this summer. Everybody understands anymore, it's not like you can just put something in front of them and they'll buy it. They want to know where it came from, how it was processed. I think we're just really on the cutting edge here in Missouri of leading the way for a lot of states right here in the United States. 
And he says Mizzou is the ideal home as the processing facility will focus on research and teaching. You've got to have a university that understands how important the research side of it is. I think that's one thing we all talk about all the time is how do we make sure we get the research? How do we make sure we got a good product out there? And how do you sell Missouri? American Foods Group is currently building a plant in Missouri that can process up to 2,500 head of cattle per day. And this new Mizzou facility will help fuel and develop that workforce. If you see the expansions we're doing in this state in the processing arenas, it, it's going to be a win-win for Missouri. So we was, I was really excited about that, especially being a beef farmer. Uh, I'm always excited about things like that. Where we're trying to be better producers and, and better at marketing. With the $25 million, Mizzou will have everything under one roof. Uh, that's maybe one of the, the, the best pieces. We're going to be in one footprint. Uh, we'll have all those operations from animal harvest, further processing, retail sales. Uh, we'll be public facing in that space as well, all under one nice big footprint with a, a little bit of an ad in terms of our, our total space and capacity. It's a win not just for Mizzou, but Wigan says it's a win for the entire state. This is a rare opportunity for a, a, a university, a land grant university, to be able to add this kind of capacity. Well, it's definitely the long game, but as you just saw, it's one that's bridging the gap between the public and private sectors, and it's already being discussed on how to potentially bring this to other colleges and universities across the state. All right, when we come back, what's a bigger concern for agriculture, Brazil being the powerhouse in production or declining situation in China? We'll ask our economists from right here at Mizzou when we come back. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Ben Brown, Pat Westoff, as well as Scott Brown rejoining us. All right, Pat, it's looking like we're not going to have a farm bill written by September 30th. That, that timeline is approaching very quickly. But if we do not get a farm bill written by that, that, that deadline, what type of impact will it have on producers? Yeah, there's not a lot of direct producer impact on September 30th. Uh, we don't have a lot of important programs that affect farmers directly that, that are going to expire that quickly. The real problems come next spring. Okay, so then talk about what are some of those potential problems next spring that if we do not still uh, in the spring have a, have a farm bill written, what implications? Yeah, if there's no new farm bill and if Congress doesn't just simply extend the current farm bill, then we revert back to legislation written in 1949, and that's probably not where we want to be. So I think a lot of folks are hoping that we'll avoid that outcome one way or the other. If we revert back to legislation from 1949, Scott, what industry do you think it hurts the most? Well, I don't know if it hurts the industry the most, but it's the one maybe most affected. We talk about the dairy cliff quite often when we talk about permanent legislation, which is back to the old price support program. We're going to talk about milk prices that would be supported uh, uh, really at four or five times where they're at today. So much higher prices, good for producers perhaps, those that uh, um, are, are in, in the business. However, I think there's a long ways to implement permanent law. It's going to take USDA a period of time to try to implement, implement pretty, uh, permanent law. So I wouldn't expect right after the first of the year that that'll be a big night and day difference. We'll just see how long it all plays out if, uh, we, again, we don't do some extension that takes care of this uh, implementation of permanent law. Well, you mentioned a cliff, and what's fallen off a cliff has been way demand to, to, to China. We have seen the impact there. But as you look at China right now and kind of the economic meltdown that, that, that we're watching, which industry do you think that that impacts the most, Ben? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. I'd probably turn to Scott and think some of our protein products. Uh, just 
one, how big of a producer China is in some different protein categories, but then how much they import from the globe, how much we send to them in those protein sectors. Um, you know, soybeans has been you know the the dominant grain and oil seed that we've sent, and so that's always at risk. But we're finding some some new demand here domestically that kind of changes our outlook in that market. Corn was the thing that we thought you know for years we've said can China continue to import corn like what they did three years ago, right? That was a big year when we they came into the market. We sent prices higher, and, and we just haven't been able to materialize that. Part of the reason is growth in, in Brazilian corn production becoming a major competitor for us. Well, that leads to my next question. As you look at Brazil and just the powerhouse that they've become on soybeans and, and now on, on, on corn, are you more concerned about the, the growing competition from Brazil or the, the potential economic fallout from China, Pat? I think we know Brazil's going to be there. They're going to be a major competitor. So that one's probably not a major uncertainty right now. I think China's where the major uncertainty is at the moment. Uh, the, there's lots of questions about the Chinese economy, alluded to those. Uh, whether they really see a, a sharp downturn in that economy is uncertain at this point. But if we do all the problems that, that Ben and Scott talked about, happening a lot more as well. You know, Pat, or, or, or Scott, um, when we do the, the monthly, Ag Economist Monthly Monitor, there's a question where you ask other economists, what is the one thing that's not being talked about enough that could impact ag over the next 12 months? What are economists telling you, Scott? Well, so I think one of the things that we hear, consolidation, uh, more generally as, as the volatility in these markets continue, uh, what's it mean in terms of, of how production agriculture looks going forward? I think that's one of the issues. Of course, international uh, pieces of that matter as well. What's going on in China? What's going on with Russia, Ukraine? All of those issues, I think, as well are, are added uncertainties that maybe at, at times aren't as covered as, as needed to be. Ben, Pat, Scott, I think so much for you guys for joining us. Plus, we had Missouri Beef Industry Council, Missouri Corn, Missouri Farm Bureau, Missouri Farmers Care, Missouri Pork, and Missouri Soybeans. First for College Roadshow to have all of those Missouri industry groups here with us. It's obvious that Missouri's on a united front, and it's awesome to see. So thank you all. We need to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with much more U.S. Farm Report. <laughs> The College of Agriculture, Food and Natural Resources here at Mizzou celebrated its 150th anniversary in 2020. During that 150 years, there have been several major wins, including helping to end a devastating grasshopper plague in the Plains State, and also they helped patent soy oleic oil that's used today. This history here is pretty spectacular to uncover, especially a discovery 75 years ago that proved to be a true medical breakthrough. I'm walking in some big footsteps here. Take a step on the Sanborn Field and you're stepping into crop research history. Oh, Sanborn Field is historic because we're the third oldest continuous site in the world. Driving by this research field at the University of Missouri is very unassuming, but to Reinbot, it was the root of so many great advancements in plant and soil science today. We've got continuous treatments for 135 years. We've learned so much and this is where so many of our common agricultural practices all started from the knowledge that we gained here. But the soil is also the foundation of medicine. One of the f interesting facts that is often overlooked is that in any soil, you'll, you will find antibiotics because it's just the nature of how these bacteria survive in nature. 75 years ago, this plot was home to a groundbreaking discovery. We had known about penicillin, we'd known about some other type of antibiotics, but they were only about 40% effective. 
and they were looking for that golden antibiotic, that one that would really be very effective. With so much effort to find microorganisms that could produce an antibiotic that wasn't just effective, but not toxic to humans or animals, researchers right here at Sanborn Field were on a mission. A gentleman that was a former faculty member here was working for Letterly Labs at the time, uh, Benjamin Duggar. He knew the director of Sanborn Field at the time who was uh, William J. Albrecht, who was the soil microbiologist, and he asked him to for some soil samples from Sanborn Field. Those samples weren't just taken from any spot at Sanborn Field. They were taken from plot 23. He knew that this plot right behind us that had been for 60 years managed the same way. It was a perennial crop, but no inputs. We should have a lot of, a lot of biology, but a pretty hostile environment for them. If any place could have a antibiotic, it's going to be here. Later that year, they made the big discovery, one that proved to be a breakthrough in the medical world. They called it auromycine. That's, that's, that's the golden color, Aureo. And that became an antibiotic auromycine itself. It's been used for decades. It's still being used in animals. And also, it's the best treatment for Rocky Mountain fever there is still today. But in the first 30 to 40 years, it was the go-to antibiotic. The aureomycin antibiotic in the tetracycline class is still uh, very useful today because of their mechanism of action. They, they attacked um, protein synthesis in the cell of these bacteria. So what that means is because it is, is very effective on these rickettsia diseases, in other words, the, uh, like the Rocky Mountain spotted fever. It's also on Lyme disease and anthrax. And it's because those particular bacteria are able to infect and, and uh, inhabit deep within the tissue of a human being, and they, they do not become resistant. It was first discovered at the end of 1945 and then patented in 1949. It then underwent clinical trials, and one of the first recipients was Toby Hockett. I was born uh, September 11, 1943. Sometime around early 1949, uh, I got a real bad stomach ache, and my parents did not pay attention. And it got worse and worse before they finally rushed me to the hospital. It turns out I had a, a ruptured, ruptured appendix. Hockett says the doctors didn't give his parents much hope for his recovery, but the doctors wanted to treat Hockett with an antibiotic that had recently been developed, which was areomycin. So if you would not have received that antibiotic, do you think you would even be alive today, Toby? No, no, I was, no, that's absolute. Hockett says it didn't just save his life, but as a defense attorney, he worked to save other lives, taking on death penalty cases and helping clients through drug court. You can't express that in words. The only thing I think about is what I was able to do with my life as a result of surviving that. But Sanborn Field isn't just home to the past. It's also uncovering potential tools for the future. We've got a lot more RMICing discoveries out here. We just got to look for them. And it may, it may not be an antibiotic, but it could be something as groundbreaking as that. And that's what gets me excited. What a discovery. Well, from discussions of buying acres or rationing demand, what do these market discussions even mean? It's a question one viewer wants to know. That's in customer support next. Who is the market?
talked about it on the show time and time again, but whether it's economists or market analysts, what does some of the market lingo even mean? Here's John Phipps. Leonard Deal from Fresno, California, wonders who the market is. The, the analysts occasionally mention the market buying acres of a crop, rationing demand, and maybe other actions as if the market had visions of future conditions or decision-making powers, i.e., had a mind of some type. The market, to me, sounds like a collection of unguided forces that maybe sometimes resemble trends, but fickle and abrupt without saying, excuse me, who or what is the market? Now, the second question here, the analysts occasionally say they cannot give an answer to some questions on the air, presumably by regulatory restrictions. The reason? Well, Leonard, I'll answer the last one first. Professionals who sell their services have no incentive to give it away on TV. For one thing, paying customers would be incensed. The second is liability. The same reason car ads show warnings like professional driver on closed course. Giving specific market advice publicly is prohibited by the Commodity Futures Trading Commission because of the lengthy warning and acceptance of disclosures required obviously cannot be done on TV. Google CFTC broker regulations to understand. As for the confusing use of the term the market when discussing prices, I have objected to this personification of collective market action for years only too late in the game to realize it may be about the best we can do for workable language as opposed to mountains of numbers. In the same way we talk about the economy or big business, our use of this shorthand is silly in some sense, like seeing a pony in the sky when it's a conglomeration of individual water vapor molecules. When observers say the market is buying acres, it's a lot briefer than saying there are more market participants who think supply could be tight in the future and are securing their needs or placing a bet before planning than there are sellers who think the opposite. The hazard of the use of the collective terms is we can forget its shorthand and begin to imagine there really is a giant personality or organization acting with singular will for its own reason and forget it's the sum of millions of little individuals making microeconomic business decisions for their own reasons. In short, the market is unhelpful jargon, I think, but I don't have a better way to summarize what's going on. Thanks, John. Well, history in the making have been here at Mizzou late last week, and it's in the world of autonomy and electrification. We'll tell you about it next. Well, another major victory for research, extension, and teaching here at Mizzou. This is the proud new home of a fully autonomous and electric Monarch tractor, and they're the first university to do so. This is the first one at a university, and it's also one of the first ones, if not the first one, outside of the state of California. This electric Monarch tractor is one that can also run autonomously, a potential game changer for specialty crop operations. Well, there's two or three things. Immediately, um, one of the programs I work with is a sustainable ag research and education program, which kind of caters to small farmers, beginning farmers, and vegetable and fruit production. and 
these tractors coming out of California, that's where they're mainly being implemented right now, is in some of the fruit and vegetable production. So there's a direct application there. And for the folks that are wanting to go the side of organic production, this tractor then isn't pumping out any hydrocarbon emissions as they go through their organic operation. So that's a big plus on that. The tractor will also be used as a teaching tool, driving Mizzou's program into the future. Well, next week, Mizzou football is celebrating agriculture with the Ag Appreciation Game. The game September 16th, and with more than 95,000 family-owned farms across the state, Mizzou would like to say thank you. Tickets are on sale for that K-State game next weekend that happens at 11 a.m. You can grab those special tickets now. Well, what a way to kick off our 2023 College Roadshow. We have a couple weeks off. Our partners at Ag Day will actually be at Purdue as well as Iowa State University. And then at the end of the month, we're back on the road to the University of Nebraska. Thank you so much for joining us and be sure to tune in next weekend as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.